Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, Nick B. Miller of RGS is back again for another edition of the RGS series. Nick, how you doing, man? Doing well, Nick. Good to be with you again. This one, we're already kind of laughing because we know that this is uh, this is a sticking point for a lot of people. This is since since RGS kind of rolled out the new plan. There's been a lot of misconceptions, mi uh, misunderstandings, maybe some miscommunications. However, you want to put it. There, there seems to be a big disconnect with the average person and understanding what all this talk about stewardship agreements are. Yeah. 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 That's fair, Nick. And, um, you know, I think it is, um, like many things often within some of our federal agencies, um, things can get really confusing really quick when you're talking about all the different tools of different agreements and different mechanisms and different regulation. And, you know, I totally get where maybe some folks kind of look at that. And it's just like, well, I don't want to hear any more about agreements. I just want to hear about habitat, you know, like what's happening on the ground and why isn't more happening. So <laughs> we can kind of speak about the, uh, the, the technical stuff and the agreements. And we can also talk about how in a positive way, uh, you know, we, we hope that that work is also resulting in um, actual increased habitat restoration as well. And, you know, to, to be forthcoming, you and I have talked about this a handful of times. And to be perfectly honest, yeah, sure. we'll talk about it. It makes sense while we talk about it. You know, it, it's as you break this down, it's going to make a lot of sense to a lot of people. But I think the issue where when we're not dealing with it on a regular basis, it kind of leaves our head. <laughs> for lack of a better term. So like in a week after me and you were talking about this, it's like the stewardship agreement. I was like, God, I, I remember aspects of it, but it's not the easiest thing to communicate. And uh, so let's just start where, what is a stewardship agreement and why is it important in terms of putting trees on the ground? Yeah, that sounds great, Nick. Um, so first I'll say part of the reason that working with the Forest Service is probably our largest priority in the region. So we spoke last time about, you know, primarily kind of state and private lands um, as part of kind of our all land strategy. Um, but when we think about 
our national forests in the Southern Appalachians, you know, there's a really unique opportunity there to benefit healthy forests and abundant wildlife and, you know, specifically grouse habitat and grouse populations. Um, it's the largest single ownership um, of forest land, right? So large blocks of contiguous forests under one, one ownership, the U.S. Forest Service, but also a lot of our more mid to high elevation sites, which we know are really kind of priority areas for grouse in the Southern Appalachians. A lot of those more mid to high elevation sites are on the, on the national forests. Um, so there's a, a need from a kind of just um, efficiency perspective of working with one landowner, but also just a real biological need of, you know, that's where a lot of the birds are and where the public has the most opportunity to interact with them and hunt, and hunt them. So um, that's part of the need. In terms of the, the kind of how, the tool, the strategy, um, one of the primary ways that we are working with the U.S. Forest Service um, is through these stewardship agreements, working on stewardship projects with that stewardship agreement as the, the uh, agreement between the Rough Grass Society and the Forest Service. And so basically, um, stewardship agreements allow the Forest Service to work with a third party partner, with a conservation partner such as the Rough Grass Society. Um, they've also used them over the years with the National Wild Turkey Federation and with uh, National Deer Association and the Nature Conservancy. Um, it enables the Forest Service to work with a conservation partner to do a few things, but namely to implement a commercial timber sale, utilize the forest product revenue from that commercial timber sale to pay for a whole bunch of forestry and wildlife habitat related non-commercial treatments. And so I'll give you an example. Um, we just sold our first stewardship timber sale uh, with the Cherokee National Forest, um, the Double G timber sale. Double G stands for grouse and gravy. Nice. Glad to hear. <laughs> um, we developed that with their silviculturalists and their biologists and their staff officer. It's on the Teleco Ranger District, so right up the hill from Teleco Plains. Um, the idea was that we could get we could do a commercial timber harvest on some more kind of mid-elevation sites, not kind of our highest elevation uh, priority areas on the Cherokee, but still a good habitat project. And then we could use some of the revenue from that sale to pay for some patch cutting and some daylighting of uh, an area up off the up off the skyway, like above 4,000 feet, where it's really kind of historically was a, a hotspot for rough grass and still holds quite a few. So that's the... You got you to gotta cut the timber to get the gravy to pay for the grass work. That's the grass and gravy. <laughs> so essentially, um, it, break that down a little bit more. Use that as sure, an example. Yeah. So essentially, you came into an agreement with, with the Forest Service on a commercial timber sale. You cut it, sold it. Then you use the proceeds from that sale to fund even more work, such as the daylighting that you're talking about. That's correct. Yeah. And so to be more specific... Um, in our stewardship agreement with the Cherokee National Forest, um, the Forest Service had several units. I think they were previously two different sales that had gone no bid. They were having an issue selling them to uh, timber buyers, to mills um, in the past. Uh, they came to us as that being a viable stewardship project and seeing if we could work with them to pull that sale together. So we entered into the stewardship agreement with them. We worked with them to review all of those, those sale areas, 
Uh, we dropped a couple areas that weren't as financially viable. We repackaged the sale into one that we felt like was going to be uh, easier to sell to a timber buyer. It would be more attractive. Um, we rolled that out. Um, RGS uh, advertised the sale. We sold it on behalf of the Forest Service. So we did all the administration of the sale. Um, we we awarded the, the sale to Frey's Sawmill. That's right there in Teleco Plains. Uh, they, they were the buyer. Um, so the contract is directly between the, the mill and RGS. And so we kind of administer the timber sale on behalf of the forest service. We work with the buyer, we work with their logging crew to have it cut. And because that timber is sold in a stewardship agreement, 100% of the forest product value stays within that stewardship project area. So, you know, we sell a timber sale on behalf of the Forest Service for $100,000. Well, that sale, you know, you and me both know very well that, you know, just cutting the trees alone is going to create some great, you know, young or open forest habitat, right? Right. But on top of that, we get to use all that forest product revenue to help pay for our staff's time to administer and do the inspections of the projects, um, to pay for contractors to do road maintenance work, uh, facilitate access, or just keep roads in good shape. Um, to pay contractors or consultants to do things like forest stand improvement, um, wildlife opening maintenance, you know, daylighting, um, a bunch of different things. Okay. So I have to ask, there's a couple of things that kind of popped up into my head uh, on that. Is is that typical on most stewardship agreements, how they kind of come about to where the Forest Service approaches you after they attempted to sell tracks of land and couldn't and i guess where i'm going with that is you know is it really just undesirable commercial land that we have to come in there and repackage every time to get moving or is this something that the forest service if they just package the the property for sale a little bit better it would already sell does that make any sense at all yeah i hear you um yeah i think it does nick so the the intent our intent of working with the forest service under these stewardship agreements is to help them with capacity to implement more active forest management projects. So if we are doing the administration and inspection of a timber sale, plus if we are doing the administration and inspection of these different kind of non-commercial treatments that we've mentioned, then that frees up the forest services time to develop and implement other projects, right? So we can use stewardship as a tool to help staff up some of our wildlife foresters on the ground that are doing some of that work in a way that increases capacity and frees up forest service staff to develop another project. So in an ideal world, you know, we have enough stewardship projects going with the forest. We've got our foresters on the ground working with contractors and consultants. They've got their foresters working on other projects. We're working hand in glove and achieving more together than the Forest Service would on their own. So that's the intent. So it it, it benefits you obviously, and it benefits them from from essentially you guys are taking over clerical work, and then the I guess the sticking point that you always hear in stewardship agreement is well this is stuff that the Forest Service is already supposed to be doing. And so in a way, it's like you're just kind of helping them be more efficient while also you guys being able to cut more trees or, or get more funds from it. If, if I mean, don't tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, but I'm trying, that's what I'm trying to do is oversimplify it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not just, um, you know, clerical work. It's we're, we're providing boots on the ground capacity. So we can have foresters out there that are inspecting sales and working with the crew to get the project done, um, playing kind of a project management and implementation role um, to free up their staff to do some of that same work somewhere else. So, yeah, it's definitely um, it's it's a mutual interest and a mutual benefit of working together. Right. That's the intent of stewardship is. The Forest Service um, doesn't have as much capacity as they would like to achieve their objectives and their forest plan. And stewardship is one of the tools that they can use to work with partners to get more done. And so that's the intent behind it. And the way your your other comment, your other question about, you know, is it always kind of like marginal, not very commercially viable sales that we're selling through stewardship? Um, no, the answer is no. So it looks different with some of the different forests that we're working in. So right now in the Southern Appalachians, we have four stewardship agreements. We have two on the Daniel Boone National Forest in Kentucky. We have one on the Cherokee National Forest, Tennessee, and we have one on the Jefferson National Forest in Virginia. And we have a couple others in development, both in North Carolina and Georgia, and also another project in development in Tennessee as well. And those projects all look different. So the one I just told you about in the teleco is an example of one that the Forest Service was having a hard time selling, and we were able to work with them to make it a viable sale. On the Daniel Boone National Forest, um, we're working on two, two, two projects that have several sales associated with them that are, are really, really good sales from a kind of timber perspective. Um, I don't think we're going to have any issue uh, selling them kind of fingers crossed, knock on wood. <laughs> and in that situation, it's less of us kind of helping pull together a sale that they've had trouble with. And it's more of them working with us on a financially viable sale just to help them with capacity to get it done so they can focus on other sales. Talk to me about the the return on all this because it, you know it's like listening to this it's it's making sense it's clicking again you know I'll probably forget it in a week or two again again but uh, talk to me about the returns like is this something is the is the additional revenue from doing agreements like this uh, sustainable in of itself in the future or kind of talk to me how it relates to matching Pittman Robertson like we talked about on the last episode with Statelands I know it's two different things but. You know, it's like since the new model, we hear about this should help fund everything a little bit better rather than the old school banquet model. Yeah. So our, you know, our funding for our conservation work comes from a lot of different diverse sources. Right. It can come from states with leveraging PR dollars. Um, it can come through agreements with an agency like NRCS. Um, it can come from private foundations um, and it can come from. This uh, this uh, exchange of forest product revenue for services that we work with the Forest Service on at the kind of center of all that in many ways is our ability to um, leverage and access non-federal resources. Chapters are vital in terms of our ability to access some of those chapter raised funds to use as leverage and match for some of these larger federal sources of funding and larger projects. So any stewardship agreement that we enter into with the Forest Service, we have to enter into that with a, with a 20% match contribution. And that contribution needs to be non-federal. And 
chapter raised funds, our drummer funds and other habitat funds raised by chapters is absolutely critical in our ability to access some of these larger opportunities for doing some of the landscape scale habitat restoration that we're, we're focused on. But just to give you a sense of kind of scale. So uh, our Peter's Branch Stewardship Project on the Daniel Boone National Forest um, is has, I think, 570 acres of commercial harvesting associated with it, right? So that's all habitat that's going to be created just through um, the sale of the timber and the cutting. Um, the appraised value that the Forest Service has on that is, you know, something around a half million. Um, that's all money that we can use within that stewardship agreement to pay contractors and to uh, cover some of our costs to implement it to get even more habitat work done. And so a lot of that habitat work, like we've talked about, can be, you know, non-commercial patch cutting, crop tree release, timber stand improvement, wildlife opening, maintenance, tree planting, all these different diverse things. And so, you know, it's in some ways, um, Nick, it's not that we kind of are not doing some of that non-commercial habitat work. It's just we're doing it and we're leveraging more resources and we're looking at sustainable forestry and commercial timber harvesting as one of the drivers of how we take some of this work to scale and treat more acres. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense. And it, just how you broke it out, I think that that kind of kind of addresses some of the a lot of the concerns that you hear from these other people that, that maybe since the new model rollout. And, you know, let's face it, there there's a lot of challenges through COVID and, and all that stuff that kind of changed the name of the game. Uh, the, the rollout of this was or the implementation of it was a little different than what it would have been if we lived in a normal society, right? But, sure. Yeah, uh, but, you know, it, it's one of those, I think it's important to highlight or, or emphasize what you just said to where chapter funds are paramount. Like they, they, they're huge in this because without those, there is no even getting your foot in the door with these stewardship agreements. So there's this isn't an either or type of thing. And I think that's the way a lot of people took it initially was, oh, you know, my dollar going to the chapter doesn't weigh as much because y'all are focused on doing the stewardship agreements. And, you know, for right or wrong, that's that's yep. what you heard a lot of. Yeah, no, that's fair, Nick. That's fair. We need to do a better job communicating to our members, especially here in the Southern Appalachians. And we need to, especially now that a lot of this COVID stuff is behind us, we need to re-engage and really um, reinvigorate and start new RGS chapters here in the Southern Appalachians too. So there's a lot, a lot of opportunity for that. And we're working on um, re-engaging a lot of those folks. On this past Sunday, I was in in Bristol meeting with the Appalachian Highlands chapter. Um, and it was, you know, it was a shame. Well, it was it was great being with all them. The shame was that <laughs> that was the first time I had met a lot of those people since I've been in this job over the past two years. You know, everything with the whole COVID-19 pandemic, you know, it really messed up our whole society and it messed up our ability to just meet with people and do events and, and, uh, you know, share some of our work on the ground. So, so that was really great seeing a lot of those folks in Bristol on Sunday. And I'm just, I'm really excited to really, you know, more effectively communicate and get the word out and, uh, just be around people, you know, and get together again. And that is one topic that we're addressing next month, right? We're, we're talking about the yep. importance of engagement and chapter involvement. And so it kind of steers right into it. But 
Before we wrap this up, is there anything else you'd like to say or clarify on these stewardship agreements uh, that hopefully kind of alleviate some of these people's concerns? I think we kind of addressed the, the main topic of people thinking that it replaces chapter funds, but it's actually the, the contrary. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point, Nick. And I mean, I appreciate you asking the question. And I'll just give maybe end with maybe an example of um, how those dollars are being put to use in different ways. Right. So we I've mentioned kind of some of our work in Kentucky. Um, like I also mentioned on our last call that we just hired a uh, all lands wildlife forester in Kentucky. And so, you know, that position was funded through a few different mechanisms. It was funded in part through our stewardship agreements on the Daniel Boone. Those helped cover some of that position's costs. It was also partially funded through an agreement that we have with NRCS Kentucky, where they're helping cover the position to get more private lands work done. And then it was also partially funded by a couple of grants that we have and an agreement that we have with the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. So, you know, it's not necessarily just kind of stewardship projects funding all of our work. It's this kind of hodgepodge of different funders and partnerships and agreements and grants that can help kind of fill out a position like one of our wildlife foresters. And then that wildlife forester can be that on the ground person that's delivering the habitat creation, working directly with members, working with chapters um, to really pull in some of those chapter raised funds and resources to just help grow and expand and leverage other resources. Makes sense. And, and I did just have one more question. Sorry, I lied. I was wrapping it up, but I did have one more question that popped up is when you enter these agreements with the forest service, does that change their requirements or, or anything like that in terms of the cut? So like, you know, for instance, we hear a lot about warbler habitat and stuff like that. Is there anything that gets worked into these agreements that aren't necessarily just, just rough grouse or woodcock habitat, but also like a main driving factor is something like the golden warbler or something outside of what, you know, as grouse and woodcock guys, that's our primary concern. A few of our projects actually occur in kind of rough grouse focal areas. So we're working with the Daniel Boone on a project that is within um, one of the the rough grouse emphasis areas, I think it's called, in their national forest forest plan. And so that's an area that the national forest has designated specifically for the purpose of helping create more, you know, diverse young forests for rough grouse. Um, same with the Jefferson National Forest with our Timberdoodle project that we're working on on the, on the, uh, on the Clinch Ranger District. Um, that's within one of their focal areas too. And so a lot of this work has an explicit rough grouse focus to it. <laughs> In fact, just the name alone on the Jefferson, the timber doodle sale, <laughs> um, you know, notes our, uh, our beloved, uh, Woodcock. So, yeah, so all, all of the work that we are doing is going to benefit rough grouse and American Woodcock. It's also going to benefit a bunch of other forest wildlife, right? And so the needs of rough grouse and woodcock are really illustrative of the needs of a lot of our forest wildlife species that have been in decline. And so habitat is species specific, right? If you look specifically at golden winged warbler or specifically at rough grouse, they have their own niche when it comes to habitat requirements. However, there is a lot of overlap between their Venn diagrams 
of where those habitat needs are very similar or the same. And so increasing young and open forest and having the right mix of mature and mixed age forests at the same time across the landscape, our goal is to create those win-win-win scenarios where we can benefit all forest wildlife, including rough grouse and woodcock, and just help promote healthy forests, healthy, diverse forests overall. Yeah. I got you. Well, unless you have something else, that's all I got for this week. And I look forward to hitting you back up and and knocking out the chapter episode next month. No, that sounds great, Nick. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening to GDIY. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukonuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.